You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. I think each trial is very, very different. I think you have to know the nature of of the trial. So what O.J. Simpson was to cable news, Scott Peterson was to the Internet, Casey Anthony was the beginning of social media, and the George Zimmerman case was social media plus. On a dark, wet February night, an African-American teenager, dressed in a hooded sweatshirt, walked back from a 7-Eleven. He was soon followed by a member of the local neighborhood watch who called 911. There was a confrontation, a fight, and the teenager was killed. A horrible tragedy, and one that has played out in one form or another in towns across the country. A year and four months later, the national spotlight is fixated on Trayvon Martin, on George Zimmerman, and on that dramatic Seminole County, Florida courtroom trial. As a court professional, how do you know when a trial will become a media event? There are times it's obvious. Watching Al Collins drive O.J. Simpson along the freeways of L.A., one knew that if there was going to be a trial, it would be a spectacle. Other times, it may not be immediately apparent. The Casey Anthony and Jody Arias trials come to mind. More importantly... What do you do once you discover that a trial in your court has caught the public's eye? What advice do those who have been through the gauntlet have for the rest of us? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by Karen Levy, Public Information Officer for the Ninth Judicial Circuit Court in Orlando, Florida. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Also with us today is Michelle Kennedy. Public Information Officer for the 18th Judicial Circuit Courts in Florida's Brevard and Seminole Counties. Thanks for joining us today, Michelle. Oh, thank you, Peter. Michelle, your court handled the trial of George Zimmerman. When did you first realize that it was going to attract national media attention? What was it that tipped you off? You know, I think uh, phone calls, more than normal coming in. The networks called early just to ask what credentialing process we were going to have. And about the time I got a 2 a.m. phone call from Fuji, Japan, because I'd happened to have transferred my my, my office line to my cell phone. And uh, I got a 2 a.m. phone call from Fuji, Japan, wanting to know if one, we had a Japanese interpreter, and two, what our credentialing process was going to be for the Zimmerman case. And that's when I knew it was more than a trial. Karen, your court handled the Casey Anthony trial. Murder trials are always difficult, but when did you know that this one would be well beyond what you were used to? You know, I think it uh, was really dealing with the national coverage of the story. Uh, Nancy Grace picked it up and started referring to Casey Anthony as pot mom, and Knightley was just really focusing on the whole Casey Anthony story. And as the years ticked, because by the time of the actual death to the time of the trial were several years, 2008 to 2011, by the time the uh, trial actually took off the interest in the coverage of the case, it just grown phenomenally. And 
honestly, it had a lot to do with the fact that there was a beautiful young girl murdered and a very pretty, attractive mother who was being uh at least charged with and, and initially just she was sort of in the spotlight. So that combination of things, just you could just feel it growing. And as the individuals became more of an entertainment piece, I guess, we started seeing more and more people coming to just sit in and, and get a glimpse of Casey Anthony and the spectacle of what people were looking at at the courtroom. Michelle? Did you have an action plan for high-profile trials before the George Zimmerman trial? Yes, before the trial, because once we knew that it was going to be heavily covered, everyone, all all the networks, I, I had one producer tell me that it would be the lead probably on their news their nightly news every evening during the trial. So I had a lot of warning, which means I had a lot of time to prepare. And I was so fortunate because State v. Zimmerman came after State v. Casey Anthony. So Karen began a lot of things that I know she can speak to, but she established the Central Florida Media Committee. So that media committee was already in place, and I was able to meet with them right from the get-go. And we probably we had several months that I met with the media committee, and they created the media plan with me. So it wasn't me behind closed doors thinking up a plan, managing it. It was kind of inheriting a lot of what they had put together for the Casey Anthony case and then working with side by side with the members of the media in this committee to get a plan that was going to work for everyone. Karen, can you share a little bit about why you started the committee and some of its benefits? Uh, Certainly. We sort of had three different groups we were dealing with. We knew that the jurors were going to be sequestered and we knew it was going to be eight weeks long. So we had a jury plan. And then we knew the public, as Michelle hinted, as the public, you know, we could, you could just see it. You could feel the interest growing. So we also had the public to deal with. And then we had the media. And as we began through our process, we realized that truly the media were our friends and they were the people that we needed to work with and focus on getting them what they needed so that they had what they needed so we could focus on dealing with the jurors and the public. And so the media committee really was something that others have done. I mean, I'd, I'd read about it through the National Center and other places. And we just thought it would be a perfect opportunity to really kick it into gear. And they helped us immensely with everything, dealing with the courtroom and outside of the courtroom. So they helped us with everything from seating. They approved our credentialing process. They worked with us to make sure they had the best coverage of the case they needed while keeping the decorum of the court in check. And we became a real partnership with that. The jurors and the public, the jurors were a difficult task because you can imagine being away from home for, you know, what could be eight weeks and the things you have to deal with, everything ranging from you know, your mail service to your bills to your pets to your your plants to just life in general, your prescription. So we had to make a complete plan for the juries in, in terms of how to handle a sequestered jury. And in our case, we actually brought the jurors from another county. They went over to Pinellas County and brought them over here to Orange County. So our jury preparations were just tremendous. And then the public. The public was a whole nother beast for us because the public for us was more people interested in entertainment, if you will, and, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. So that those were sort of the three components. The media committee 
really assisted us, though, with making sure that they were not the problem and they wanted to help us in every way they could. So they carried on and went on and did the same for Michelle, and they are still in existence today, and Michelle and I work with them regularly. Give us a few examples of how the public saw the trial as entertainment and what the court had to do to respond. Well, the lines to get in the Casey Anthony trial were just uh, tremendous. The people were spending overnights like they would if they were going to a concert ticket. Uh, they were bringing lounge chairs, coolers, everything to just wait in line. So we had to deal with the public differently than we've ever had to deal with them previously. And most of them were entertainment type followers. They had, uh, they were fans of Nancy Grace and they were fans of the, the magazine publications that were on television. So we had to deal with them. So a couple of examples would be they would have families dropping the people off. So we'd see people getting dropped off. Some of the family would be going to Disney World, and the balance of them would be coming to watch the trial. And they would ask why they couldn't bring in misting fans into the courtroom, why they their luggage. I mean, people would be dropped off with luggage, and they wanted to bring the luggage into the courtroom. So they treated it not in a judicial branch of government, but more like something to sit and watch as though you were envisioning this amazing entertainment piece, this movie. And yet, it was broadcast live on all of our local stations from gavel to gavel. So people could have stayed home and watched it, but they they wanted to feel like they were a part of this concert, if you will. So they showed up in mass to come and watch and and get a moment to see the, the players, who were all very engaging and very the public, the defense counsel, the state attorney, everybody played a role in it. And then our, the judge at the time was Salvin Perry, who was the chief judge, and he was also very engaging. And so they all felt like they were characters in a movie. Many high-profile trials these days have profound political implications. Michelle, how are politically charged trials different from other types of trial spectacles on a day-to-day basis? Well, Karen and I joke that she had the People Magazine trial and I had the Time or Newsweek trial because it was obviously more subdued. Not that we didn't have our share of people that treated it like it was, you know, going to be uh, entertainment. We had truly someone, a circus act come, a man on stilts juggling and part of our lawn at the courthouse that we reserved for people to have. We called it the, the free speech zone where protesters and people with signs that were coming, we kind of gave them an area where they could express themselves. So so we had an element of that. But inside the courtroom and a lot of what was interesting with the Zimmerman trial is that there were buses that caravaned down for, from African-American churches. And they came and they were quiet and they were respectful and they came literally their field trip to Florida and to the courthouse grounds was they came to pray. So it was obviously a very different group. A couple of deputies would, when they found these people that would come from out of state just to somehow be part of the process, even though they could have watched it on TV live, they came, like Karen said, they wanted to be a, feel like a part of it. And some of the deputies came to me and said, you know, here, this church has come from Georgia this church has come from Alabama. And if I could, and a couple of times I was able to, the courthouse had either adjourned for the day or it was lunchtime. I brought them into the courtroom and let them have five minutes where they were able to see the jury box and see where the judge was. And, and they wanted that. So it, it, we try to be very mindful, very respectful of 
kind of the raw emotion that the Trayvon Martin killing had and for everyone, but especially for uh, for African-Americans. It was not a, a joking matter. It was very serious. Karen, tell us how you dealt with the media. What was your biggest challenge? Well, I think if you have enough advanced knowledge, you know, if you know it's coming, you can work through anything. And we were successful, as was Michelle, in terms of coordinating with the media. We did credential so that we and assigned seats. So the media had to be wearing a ninth Judicial Circuit Court media credential so that they had been vetted and they had access to certain areas as a result of that. And the media together worked on that. They had a certain number of allocated seats. They drew from a, a hat, basically, the order they picked their seat in. And if the seat was vacant for any period of time, they forfeited their seat. So they would share with the nationals, uh, you know, the locals would share with the nationals. We did have, you know, lots of issues outside of our courts as well because of the, the, we had to create basically a broadcast village, if you will, an area where they could set up because of the duration of the case. They brought in trailers and brought in uh, they actually had to build a road for fire access. The city required them to, to put in a road to allow a fire, fire trucks to get by. So there was a lot of media staging and a lot of media issues. But as a result of the media committee, we were able, if there was a problem arose, if somebody was not, was disrespectful or doing something inappropriate or, or trying to get information that was not there, they weren't going through the proper channels, we would simply, I would let the media committee chair know or the media committee representatives and they would filter it back and sort of dealt with the problems themselves. So honestly, I've said this a thousand times, the media were not our problem during the Casey Anthony trial because of the excellent working relationships that were established going in. And again, there was hundreds and hundreds of proceedings leading up to the trial. So you had a pretty good gauge on who was going to come, how long they were going to stay, and what type of people they were. And as we got closer and closer to the trial, those things were all worked out so that there was no question mark as to what the media needed to do or how they did it. There was issues associated with trying to get information, like they wanted to know the names of the jurors and things like that. And some of that became problematic. But again, they wanted their seats. They didn't want to forfeit their seats. And, and it was a little bit of the carrot approach that if they did what we asked them to do, then they kept their seats and life was good. And during the trial, during problems, if we had a, a juror, we had a, a person in the public at one point literally flip off the court put his middle finger in the air, and none of us caught it, but one of the stations caught it and immediately called and just wanted to make sure none of the jurors had seen it and all of that. And we were, you know, ultimately, the he was holding contempt of court. But it was because of the media's relationship with the court that we even knew about it. Michelle, how about you? What was your biggest challenge during the trial? Well, we had a wonderful planning committee, and I think everyone was really good about following the, the rules. And like Karen said, there was self-censorship. They would point out if there was a reporter or someone breaking the rules because they didn't want it to harm the entire – because at that time, we allowed them to have their cell phones for tweeting. And cell phones had not been allowed in the courtroom prior to that, so it was a big deal that they got to keep their cell phones. So. If someone's cell phone went off, everyone was quick to name the party and let that party be responsible. They didn't want it to be something that got out of hand so that everyone would lose their privileges. So things like that, there was a lot of self-censoring. 
Now, we did have a problem with bookers. Our problem with bookers was a little more serious than what Karen had encountered. However, if Karen had not encountered them first, I wouldn't have known what to look for. She had told me what bookers were. Michelle, can you explain to our listeners what bookers are? I will quote Karen Levy and say that bookers can often be associate producers, assistant producers, but they are there to book exclusives for usually networks or like a show like Dateline or something like that that has the money and the wherewithal, the resources. That's their job. That's their sole job. They come in to book exclusives. But they come in early. They're, they're going to be at your pretrial proceedings, and they're trying to be on the ground getting interviews ready for – to get exclusives ready for their their network um, when the trial comes around or concludes. We had a couple of bookers really cross the line, and, and if I've always said if left unchecked, they could have caused a mistrial because they were reaching out, trying to identify jurors. They were reaching out to family members, and they were actually taking photos of license tags of potential jurors. Even during voir dire, they would walk out with them. One person had walked out with them and was photographing people on the panel to be to go through jury selection. They were trying to identify them, taking pictures of them, taking pictures of their tags, and it did not go unnoticed. So it, it this was something that bothered the people that were being photographed. And obviously, when we got to the bottom of it, a booker had hired a private eye to do this and got someone kicked off immediately. And that was the end of it. But they had the money and the wherewithal to really pose a problem if it, if it had gone unchecked. I had heard that some courts allocated rooms in their courthouse for the media to set up operations during high-profile trials. Did either of you allocate rooms in your courthouse for the media? I think we both did. We had overflow courtroom. I, did you, we you did, did that too. Oh, okay. No, we did I not. did. Our courthouse is a fiber optic network, so that there's a feed from our respective courtrooms out to a media pedestal out on the street. Um, our media, the media for Casey Anthony and other high-profile cases, tended to coordinate with local private landowners, and they would stage off-site of our courthouse. We did not allow tents and things like that on our property. They were right across the street or adjacent, and then their satellite trucks and respective vans and actually mobile homes even were brought in to utilize that. Some of them rented space from hotels and things like that surrounding and actually filmed out of that. But no, we did not have an overflow courtroom for it. We just, it wasn't necessary. They went outside and were dealing with it in their trucks or they were um, in the courtroom. Or in, or in an overflow, we did have a, a small little conference room that we utilized, but that was not not a regular day. Our overflow courtroom uh, also doubled as a, a staging area for press conferences, and we felt we needed to do that because we had serious security concerns. There were death threats, which the sheriff's office deemed as credible against the attorneys, against Trayvon Martin's family, against the judge. And we had an overflow courtroom that we used where we had the, the, the feeds of everyone, the reporters that didn't make it onto the A-list to be actually in the courtroom could use the overflow courtroom. They could still say they were reporting from the courthouse, but they were able to watch everything from you know this overflow courtroom that we also doubled for the press conferences so that we were keeping Trayvon Martin's family indoors where we had more security, you know, obviously were able to to vouch for the security that we had inside the courthouse, but we couldn't vouch for it when they went out there on the, you know, outside and off-site. 
Now, back in the day, if a court had a high-profile trial, recognized media organizations, such as Court TV, would descend on the courthouse. Now, though, bloggers with very limited followings can show up demanding the same access as established media outlets. Karen, in this age of social media, is it difficult to distinguish conventional media people from the random blogger? And what do you do? Well, we recognized fairly early there were there were individuals like, for instance, one blogger who had a hairstyling blog wanted to come in and serve as a blogger to talk about the individual's hairstyles in the courtroom. We recognized early on that that just was not what we were defining as a blogger. So we defined media for the purposes of actually giving everyone a definition to allow for bloggers to be able to come, but the blogger had to meet certain criteria. For instance, they just had to have had covered courts, you know, for like six months, covered the judicial branch. They had to have, you know, it had to be beyond a link or a forum or just a troubleshooting tip. It had to be something more than that. It had to have independent editing and publishing materials. So we created a definition and we had over 800 individuals apply for media credentials and many of them were bloggers and we accepted uh, several bloggers and we didn't have a single problem with any of the bloggers who came and were credentialed. Many were turned away because they did not meet our criteria. But the bloggers who did come in sat right next to the national news organizations, and they covered and and they filled a void in their worlds. Many had lots of followings, and as the trial continued, their numbers continued to uptick as well. And we've held that definition to date and have been a very solid thing for us. It has worked remarkably well, and individuals who cover court in their respective blogs are welcome. Those that do not are not allowed to just come in to cover a hairstyle or what have you. Now, Michelle, you use Twitter to disseminate the news. What are the benefits and drawbacks of using Twitter? I actually opened a Twitter Twitter account during the trial. And everyone said that, well, it's too late now, but you should have thought of Twitter beforehand. But I had reporters talking me into it. What would happen is I would have these extremely long electronic distribution lists for getting news out. And reporters were complaining left and right. So-and-so got their email before me. My Your email didn't go through. Whether it was their filters or if it, if it was on me, I, I got tired of it. So um, I opened a Twitter account and within two days, I think I had 4,000 followers. It was, it took no time for, for, to get the circulation I needed. And then I was done. I, with one tweet, I was able to get all the information out and everyone had it at the same time. And it was on, on them, their responsibility to, you know, keep up with their Twitter account. So. I'm a believer in Twitter ever since. It was the the most efficient tool I had. I guess the drawbacks are that you could you could mess up a tweet. You you know, working live, going day to day in a trial. I I guess there are. I was fearful of the potential to to make a mistake, and you know, there's no getting back a tweet. But it it worked for me, and I would recommend it in the future. Michelle and Karen face numerous logistical issues while keeping track of these difficult trials. We'll learn more about how they managed after this short break. Hi, 
My name is Dorothy Howell, and I have the distinct pleasure of working for the state of New Jersey Superior Court. My National Association of Court Management membership has proven to be vital to my professional development. I've connected and fostered valuable relationships with other court professionals throughout the country as well as abroad. These relationships created a network of experiences, ideas, and projects that have proven to be valuable and what works. If you are a member, I strongly encourage you to join any of the numerous volunteer opportunities that makes NACOM the premier professional organization for court executives. If you're not, what are you waiting for? Join today by clicking on the join button and I'll see you at the next conference. We're back with Michelle Kennedy and Karen Levy discussing how they dealt with high-profile trials. When faced with a crisis, other court administrators have told me that they had to develop backup plans for their backup plans. Michelle, did you have to improvise much during the trial? Oh, we did. You just have to be ready. You've got to be present, and you've got to be working on the fly. I can't tell you what the days were like. I mean, that's one thing Karen and I have talked about and have similar memories of just you're working 12, 16-hour days at times. It's There's just one demand after another. And, yeah, you would have to just keep making it up as you go along. But, again, um, we had such a great committee that we were, as far as media goes, we were working with the media and and they the cooperative spirit was was wonderful so i think i credit a lot of our success to to having that committee and it being such a you know positive role for us karen did you have to improvise much during the trial you know i think in life you have to improvise i don't think <laughs> i think the high profile trials are just another extension of that and as things you know happen you just go with it. And the goal really is to make sure that the court decorum stays intact, that the judge is not having to deal with the stuff going on outside that courtroom, that the judge is only listening to the legal arguments and keeping control of the courtroom. Everything else really should be on the public information officer, the court administrators. It should really be on that. So the goal is to hopefully have enough plans and enough enough wisdom to be able to change or move things if necessary as the tide flows and things change. Michelle, did you have to ever give advice to a judge about how to deal with the media? And what did you say? You know, I had such a great experience working with Judge Deborah Nelson. She, you know, it was obvious that uh, you know, she had the national audience on her, and there was a, a lot of pressure. But she's just stayed remarkably calm and, and just very accessible throughout. So she was a PIO's dream to work with as far as being accessible. I did have to take problems to her. The only bit of advice I think that kind of stands out is there was that incident where one of the, the person was caught photographing the license tags. Actually, we thought she might have been photographing the people, but it turns out it was the license tags. And I was sitting at a table with the sheriff and their PIO and the judge, and he wanted to make the network and all of the reporters leave, just pack up and go. And I knew that if 
that network was kicked off site and, and not allowed to, to report. I knew that I'd be dealing with attorneys, you know, flying down from New York and, you know, hitting us with all other kinds of issues that we, we didn't need to be handling. So I just looked to the judge and said, can I make a recommendation that we just table this for now? We, we review, we take stock and we don't throw the network out. And I think it was good advice because we did deal with the individuals and, you know, an example was made, but I didn't want to take on a corporate ABC uh, during the middle of the state visa amendment. I just thought we should take time and, you know, cooler heads prevail. Nothing to be Karen, done in the moment. Karen, how about you? Did you ever have to give advice to a judge about how to deal with the media? Again, I think if you've sort of talked and explained sort of the parameters and the judge and you understand each other in any case, whether it's a high profile or just a regular case, you begin to know what, you know, what is expected. So there were numerous times during the trial that things happened that the judge needed to be aware of in any case. I just think there's times when you just have to let the judge know. So did I give advice? Absolutely not. Did I did I let the judge know so that the judge could weigh in on it and, and give advice as to how he or she would like something handled? Absolutely. I think the judges are it's their responsibility to not be dealing with the circus that's outside the courtroom. And we just have to do everything we can to make sure that what they're doing is just calling the balls and strikes in the courtroom. They're not dealing with the stuff with the, the jugglers and the crazy things that go on outside. They've got to keep their eye on the prize, and it's our job to try to keep as much as we can away from them. Karen, do you try to use these sorts of trials as educational experiences for the public, and how do you do it? You know, it's initially, I don't think I looked at it that way, but as the trial was ticking on, I realized that there was this group of students, particularly, that were following the case that knew nothing about the three branches of government. And they were surprised to follow it, a real legitimate court case, like they weren't watching a television show. They were watching a judge actually command the courtroom and the legal issues surrounding it. And as a result of that, we've had numerous, for years it went on, where school groups would come in and they'd want to be in the Casey Anthony courtroom. But it was an opportunity to really explain what the judicial branch is and how it functions and without it, what where we would be. So I do think there's an audience as a result of both Michelle's case and our case in Central Florida that might be now interested in being lawyers, being associated with the court system because they had an opportunity that lots of others don't. There were no soap operas playing for years between the Casey Anthony and the George Zimmerman trial. That So during that period of time, they watched court cases. And I think it was an opportunity to see an unfiltered, unfettered, they just saw the raw footage of a court case in action. And to this day, we have a intern that's now graduated. He was an intern at the time. He's now graduated law school and is practicing here in our court. So a lot of people got interested in the law as a result of these crazy high-profile cases. So it is an opportunity absolutely to take what is it could be potentially a really bad thing in terms of just having to deal with all of the stuff associated with it and actually turning it into a positive light 
and seeing the great work the judges do, the great work the courts do, and just judicial system in action. Well, I would echo what Karen said about uh, it being an educational opportunity for students especially. We had news teams from community colleges that came, and they worked in our overflow courtroom, and they came early and stayed late, and they stayed for the entire trial. And their teacher came out. We had a couple of professors come out to say, are they really here? They're saying they're here day and night. And I'm like, you bet they are. And they were keeping such good track of things. I had the, the Miami Herald reporter getting with a couple of the kids saying, okay, what happened here? Well, what happened then? Because the kids, they were taking it so seriously. So I really think that it probably was very inspirational for some students who, who took it very seriously and took the opportunity to learn. Michelle, besides students, were you able to work with any other groups? We actually did work with community leaders in advance to inform them more about the process and to reserve seats for them, people from the um, pastoral community, um, primarily African-American churches, but um, other churches as well, and let them be in the courtroom with the reserve seat so that they could go back into their um, congregations and, and tell them that the, the case was being taken very seriously, that it was, you know, tried and true process, that it was up to the legal system and to, you know, to make the, the final decision in the case. And, and I think bringing in those people and making them kind of a part of the process um, really worked to make everyone feel like the case was being taken very seriously and that they were they being informed all the way through. Karen, how long did the media attention continue even after the trial, and what was that like? Well, some of it after the trial was over actually didn't land with us anymore. It was her release from jail and things like that that, that launched you know some additional media interest. Um, with respect to the jurors, our, the judge in the trial had a cooling-off period before he would release the names of the jurors. He called for a 90-day cooling-off period. The, the truth be known that many of the media already knew who the jurors were from research and, and different uh, things along the way that had happened, but he didn't release it for 90 days. So during those 90 days, we would receive phone calls regularly from jurors who were upset that the media had knocked on their door, had called them, were reaching out to their employment things like that. So we dealt with the media on that end for quite some time after the trial was over. But a lot of the focus left the court system and went over to the jail and then um, to other other groups. In a way, a high-profile trial could be like any other crisis in a court. You could go your entire career without ever experiencing one. When it happens, though, a court could be entirely unprepared. So what advice do you have for court administrators from around the country? Karen? Well, I think um, each trial is very, very different. I think you have to know the nature of the, of the trial. So what O.J. Simpson was to cable news, Scott Peterson was to the Internet, Casey Anthony was the beginning of social media, and the George Zimmerman case was social media plus. I mean, if you look at it that way, each one of those is very different, and Michelle's case was just in her circuit was very different than our case. So I think if you just work through the plans, the National Center has a, a great document that, that sort of talks about the jurors and the public and, and the media, and you just kind of work through it and you have your plans in place, I think, you know, you get through it. 
there it's never like Michelle said it's it's long days long nights because you really are you know you have other jobs as well it's not like that's the only thing happening in the court system and that's something that's really important because other courts are going on there's other individuals that are coming to the court system for their respective important matters whether it's a criminal proceeding a, a marriage a divorce an adoption whatever they may be coming to your court system for. And they all have due process and they all have the rights that need to be protected. So if you've got this craziness going on inside the courthouse just because of one case, you have to do everything you can to minimize it so that the other proceedings and the other judges that you work for are feeling that, you know, the only thing going on is that case. It's hard sometimes to make that happen. But I think court administrators across the country do what they can to make sure that other proceedings and the public that's coming in has their day in court, not just that crazy high-profile case that's going on. Michelle, what advice would you give to other court administrators from around the country? I, I agree with Karen. It, you know, all the planning that you do in advance, you're not just doing that to accommodate the media. You're not just doing that so that you can accommodate the public. You are doing that so that you can still do business, the business of the courts, Every day, Monday through Friday, we still had to, you know, be able to, like Karen said, do the adoptions. People had to be able to park so that they could go file for, you know, divorce or or pick up a marriage certificate. All the planning we did that in, included parking and overflow parking and making the the reporters pitch in and and have their basically have temporary restrooms installed. Those are so that we would be able to keep our restrooms open for the public. They, all the things you're doing, you're doing so, so that your courthouse can continue business as usual. I want to thank both Karen and Michelle today for sharing their experiences and insights with us. Your descriptions are absolutely gripping. We can all learn from what you've had to deal with. High-profile trials seem to be part of our culture and will remain so into the future. Michelle, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Karen, I'm grateful for you sharing your thoughts. Absolutely. You're welcome. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. If you have a question about this or any of the podcast episodes, email us at podcast at nakamnet.org. In most cases, we'll answer your question at the end of a future podcast. And be sure to catch next month's episode on active shooter situations. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.